Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, That at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In chapter 3 we find this most dramatic of stories, one that you've heard over and over again. And certainly if you participated in vacation Bible school, you know this story. It's the story of three Hebrew captives far from home in a pagan culture with a pagan king. And they're going to have to make that very difficult decision, which some have called going against the flow, which some have called daring to be a Daniel. For some who have said, I am going to go in a different direction, they're willing to defy the king and the culture. The story is so familiar. And the characters in the drama include a king with almost unlimited powers, unlimited resources, unlimited wealth, unlimited strength. Surrounding the king are willing subjects ready to submit to this king, no matter how outrageous his demands. Enter Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, three Jewish men who have had their names changed to reflect Babylonian deities and dignities whose real names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're three Jewish men who stood bravely with Daniel in the first chapter, refusing to eat the king's food in verses 6 through 16 in the first chapter. 
And so we begin to understand that like them, there are tests, there are challenges, there are trials, there are temptations, there are persecutions, adversity, affliction, anguishes, and sorrow. We Christians have a name for those moments. We call them fiery trials. Our unbelieving friends even have those moments. They may not call them fiery trials. They may call them hard times. They may call them times of deep difficulty, but they are difficult times. What resources does the Christian have? Which is different from the unbeliever. We have a steadfast and resolute faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We surrender and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. We trust the Lord's deliverance. This chapter begins with a flamboyant monarch in verses 1 through 7. It's also later going to feature three faithful men in verses 8 through 23. But as we continue into the chapter, we're going to be introduced to a fourth man, a supernatural being who's going to be found in the fire in verses 24 through 30. So this chapter contains elements of history and parable and prophecy. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 97.10, the Lord loves those who hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. If you believe what the psalmist said, the Lord loves those who hate evil. Then you're also going to be aware that one of the things that the Lord finds most evil is the human commitment to substitute the lordship of an everlasting king in heaven for silly substitutes, for man-made substitutes. There's a reason at the very first of the Ten Commandments it says that you shall have, that you shall love the Lord your God, that you'll have no other gods before you. The reason why these children of Israel are in Babylon is because of a commitment on the part of the Jewish people to idolatry. And so just like the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness, who complained and begged for food, God sent (laughs) birds from the air to fill their nostrils till they couldn't stand it anymore. And so for this group of people committed to idolatry, he sends them to the land where they invented idolatry, where idolatry takes place 24-7 so that the Jewish people would begin to understand enough, enough. We've had enough of idolatry. We don't want any more idolatry. But the world in which we live in invites you to worship. Not the God of the Bible, not the Savior in the Bible. The world will invite you to worship health or wealth or wisdom. The world will settle for anything other than the God of the Bible. The world's worship suggests 
that we worship anything other than the God of the Bible. We can worship ourselves. We can worship service. We can worship science. Human beings were designed by God to worship something or someone. And so as we live in a world because we are designed by God for worship, there's something inside of us that wells up a sense of affection and calls us to commit ourselves to something or someone. And every single person worships. Believer and unbeliever alike. And if you want to know the test of what it is that you worship, it's a very simple test. Because the thing that you really worship is the thing that you think about first thing in the morning, that you live for during the day, that your time and your talent and your treasure is committed to. It's that thing that when you lay your head on the pillow, it's the last thing thought in your mind and the first thought that you have when you get up and you should be challenged by that because if it's something other than the God of the Bible if it's something other than the Lord Jesus Christ then you might be experiencing a crisis of worship Revelation 13 describes a future time when two beasts will emerge from the seas or the nations that bear a striking resemblance to the beasts that are talked about in Daniel chapter 7. John sees these beasts in reverse order because he's looking back in the book of Revelation. The beast of Revelation 13 is fatally wounded in verse 3, 12, and 14, and then he rises from the dead, and the whole world will admire this beast and worship him according to revelation the one who gives the beast power and life the beast will place an image in the most holy temple on planet earth and this beast will call on the peoples of the earth to worship the image in the temple And so Daniel chapter 3 provides a sort of a sneak peek preview. It's sort of like when you go to the movies or you rent a DVD and they give you attractions of things that are going to come. This is a sneak peek of the future of humanity. A future king will call the world to global worship. A future king will have a global project. A future king is going to include this universal proclamation and this future king is going to have severe penalties for those who disobey him. But for the Christian, Jesus is our king. Jesus promises persecution, but also preservation and an eventual promotion in his kingdom. So let's look at the text and put on our Jesus glasses. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. It's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, In the province of Babylon. Now I want you to locate yourself in the text. 
Chapter 1 has gone by. Chapter 2 has gone by. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3, some 18 to 20 years have, have passed by. Daniel's no longer a teenager and his friends are no longer teenagers. They're young, but they're mature. They haven't reached vintage age like me, but they are definitely older. Now, I want you to think about this. This means that this is about the 18th, 19th, or 20th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. What does all of that mean? It means that the destruction of the Jewish temple has already happened. The Babylonians have already invaded Carchemish. They've already laid siege to Tyre for 13 years. They've marched down the Levant of both northern Israel and southern Israel. They've made their way to the orifice of the Nile River. They've marched into Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar has seen the great pyramids of Giza. Nebuchadnezzar has laid his eyes on the magnificent obelisks and the incredible statues and idolatry represented by Egypt. And I'm absolutely certain that his heart has been elevated and filled with pride as he seeks to create something that will mark his presence on the earth forever. And so he builds this statue. I've already told you that scholars who understand Babylonian cubits and Hebrew cubits and Middle Eastern cubits have, have basically translated this to about 45 centimeters or about 17 and a half to 18 inches. In the ancient world, a cubit was from the tip of your elbow to your middle finger. And so this statue was roughly about 90 feet tall and it would have been about nine feet wide at the base. So why does Daniel mention the exact dimensions of the statue? I think it's because the numbers mean something. And I think that the numbers are provocative. Six in the Bible is the number of a man. Man was created on the sixth day. Goliath was measured in sixes. There were six steps that you had to ascend as you went to Solomon's throne. Solomon's wages were calculated at 666 shekels of pure gold. In the book of Revelation, a future king is given in John in his, gospel, in his revelation. In Revelation 13, 8, talks about this future king. And he says, I need you to have wisdom and understanding. His name is Six and Six and Six. The number seems to play an important role in the future identity of this Antichrist. And by the way, the one book that gives us more information about this future ruler, his identity, and his character is going to be contained in this book of Daniel. And so, seven is the number of completion. And I need you to hear that. It's not necessarily the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. Satan is seen as a beast 
with seven heads and ten horns in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. So if this image is in the form of some sort of human image, if this image of pure gold in some way either represents the god Baal or the god Marduk, and some commentators have even suggested that it may be an image of a human being, then the image of six cubits at the base and 60 cubits in height would make the dimensions about 10 to one. So if you can imagine in your mind this statue, it would be a very skinny human being that goes up into the air. To put things in perspective, the Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island from heel to head is about 111 feet tall. This statue erected on the plains of Dura is some 20 feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty. How many of you have actually seen the Statue of Liberty? Look at all the hands go up. I have a question for you. Can you see it for miles? You can see it for miles on the pedestal on Ellis Island. The plains of Dura were some six miles south of Babylon, and you would have been able to see this image from far, far away. The Statue of Rhodes, which isn't going to be built for another 400 years, was, was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was 70 cubits tall. And people could literally float boats through its spread legs, and so again, a normal human being would have had about a five to one ratio. This, so this image would have, would have been very slender. In Daniel chapter two, verse 47, you'll remember Daniel said, or actually Nebuchadnezzar has said, truly your God is God of gods. And Lord of kings. But years have gone by. Not just five or ten or fifteen. All, probably almost twenty years have gone by. And again, the word dura in the Akkadian language meant walled. Or walled enclosure. Some have suggested again this area may have been surrounded by hills or mountains. Archaeologists believe they found the site that fits the description. It's some six miles south of Babylon on some sort of raised pedestal, but archeologists remain uncertain as to its location. But what is certain is that Nebuchadnezzar would have raided the world's wealth and workmen. He would have confiscated all of the gold that he could have found in Persia, all of the gold that, that he found Throughout the Middle East, as you make your way up the Levant, down to Egypt, he would have taken treasure after treasure after treasure to build his statue. Now, I want you to think about this. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, he's not just paying homage to his gods. He's paying homage to himself. 
In in a very real way, this statue represents his identity, his thoughts about himself. I'm going to suggest to you that he believes that he is a godlike being. So, some people have said, well, does this statue represent some ancient god from Babylon's past? Is it a new god? Is it a tribute to humanity? Or is it a tribute to who Nebuchadnezzar sees as the greatest human being in the world? Himself. I'm reminded of our friend Muhammad Ali who used to say, I'm the greatest. There's no one greater. In order to lick me, you're going to have to put my picture on a postage stamp. And that's exactly what they did. They put his picture on a postage stamp. In verse 2, we see the king's universal proclamation down to verse 5. Look what it says. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here's what we know. Nebuchadnezzar has created the statue. He's used his wealth to create it. He has ordered that it be set up. But there are seven offices that are listed in what looks like descending order. I want you to look carefully at at the text. Because I'm going to suggest to you that these are administrative or governing offices that are going to be repeated. And so you'll see seven sets Satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates. Who are these people and what does it mean? The word satrap was a word that was used in the ancient world to describe a king or a prince or a president. The satrap and the satrapi were provinces where there were rulers over specific regions. Administrators were also called prefects. And the difference between the satrap and the administrator is the administrator also takes on the role of military chief. And so this is a military chief or a commander. And so these would have been men who commanded the military might of that particular region. And then the governors are civil administrators or lieutenants or viceroys who answer to the administrators and the satraps. The counselors are legal experts. And so in this particular instance, when you see the word counselor, think lawyer or think legal expert. In other words, these counselors are tasked with forming laws, understanding the laws, interpreting the laws, and then serving as counselors or legal counsel to the governor, the administrator, and the satrap. And then there were the treasurers. These are the people who are in charge of Babylon's treasure houses. They're tasked with finance or payroll. These are the people, we might think of them as as the office of the budget administration. And they're the ones who make sure everyone is paid and that they're paid on time. 
And then there are the judges, or what we might call the Justice Department, or those people who are tasked with the specific administration and then application of the law. And then the magistrates, again, are the judges who passed judgment in keeping the law. What does all of this mean? Included in the list are all the officials of the provinces, that is, the civil leaders in Babylon. So again, we might think of this as a who's who of public and private people who are tasked with the social, economic, and political lifeblood of the land. And so in verse Three, it says, so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So they're on the plain of Dura. This vast group of important people are standing before the statue. And again, you've got to understand just how overwhelming this must have been. Then a herald cries in verse 4, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. So what's happening in the text? A herald is the person who's tasked with announcing to everyone present the mandatory participation in the king's new religion. All the classes of government were to participate. The command is explicit. When you hear Babylon's big band break out in music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that the king has set up. So this is going to involve several things. It is the act of prostration or bowing. And in the act of prostration and bowing, they are acknowledging several things. They're acknowledging the king's absolute political control. They are acknowledging the religious authority. This is an open public act of submission. It is not just state-sponsored, but it's state-required Worship. So the way that we, we, we should think about this is this is a religion that's been fabricated by the state that requires compulsive acknowledgement. This was the kind of worship that was required by the Japanese people to their emperor, emperor worship in Japan, or the veneration of Lenin in the former Soviet Union, or the idolization of the North Korean ruler. This has been repeated over and over and over again throughout human history. So in ancient times, 
music played a cultural role and it played a religious role. And you see in the list of instruments at the top of the list is a horn or a trumpet. Uh, sometimes a trumpet would have been made out of an animal's horn. Sometimes, like in the ancient Hebrew people, they would certainly blow the shofar, which is a ram's horn, but sometimes they would beat solid silver into a trumpet-like thing that you could blow as, as, as a type of, of instrument, as a piece of metal. So for the Jewish people, the blowing of the shofar marked special days, feast days, celebration days, um, sacrificial days. The pipe was a wind instrument. It would have been made out of the reeds or the canes. And remember, here in the Middle East, you have two great big rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And there are reeds and rushes all along the riverbanks. And so any child could, could cut down the reed and, and make a flute or an instrument of wind. And so this became something that was, was uh, down, they had it down to an art form. And so... There was the lyre, which was a stringed instrument on a wooden frame like David's harp. And so the Bible indicates, for instance, that David was proficient on several instruments. So there was a harp and a lyre, which think of it in terms of, of like a bass stringed instrument and a higher stringed instrument, the psaltery. And so one of the instruments would have high tones, one of the instruments would have had low tones. And so there was also an instrument that, in, that included a type of percussion instrument, like a drum. And so the whole thing becomes this situation where music is being used to celebrate worship. And you can imagine in the Bible, music can be used for true worship and it can be used for false worship. Clearly, music played a vital role in ancient times and in the Bible. We see music played at the homecoming of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, 25. Remember when the prodigal son eventually makes it home, the father hires a band and they strike up the music and they have a party and there is a celebration. Music was used in banquets and Feast. It's repeated over and over again in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 12, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 8. And also music was used at funerals and times of great mourning and the public expression of grief. And we see that in a number of different places, including Matthew chapter 9, verse 23. So music is played at the coronation of kings. It's played at temple ceremonies. It's played at pilgrimages. Um, the, the Bible speaks of music being used to enter into a trance or an altered state of consciousness to receive divine communications in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 13, to celebrate military victories in Exodus chapter 15. And so it shouldn't surprise us that here music is being used as a call to false worship and worship that is condemned in the Bible. And so we see the genesis, if you will, of this king's attempt to form the world's 
first unified world religion that everyone had to participate in, regardless of your background. And I'm going to suggest to you that this king is motivated not simply by pride, although I think that he's showing his true colors of what's going on inside of his heart. But he has justified his wickedness by, by thinking to himself that if we had a common religion, if we had a way of unifying ourselves together, then the problems and the difficulties and peace would come upon the planet and love would steer the stars. Just like if you were a kid growing up when I did, you'll remember the dawning of Aquarius. It was this call to worship that if we would all just join in the dance of the stars and that we would celebrate life and we would celebrate humanity. And here is the, the reality. We as Christians know that human beings are made in the image of God. We know that humanity and human beings are important. But the Bible doesn't say that human beings are supreme. Life is sacred. But human beings are not and will never be God. So again, we might think of this as state-enforced religion. And the law in a nutshell is turn or burn. The cue to bow is when you hear the Babylonian big band or the Babylonian Philharmonic Orchestra, that's the call to worship. That's the time to bow down. The king required full, unqualified allegiance to him. And we're going to see this repeated throughout history. You may not know this, but in the Roman Empire, when Christians were called to pinch incense to the emperor... In the Roman Empire, there was religious freedom. You could serve whatever God you wanted or no God at all. But everyone was required to have political loyalty. And so the Christians weren't charged with religious indiscretion. The Christians were charged with treason. And that's what's happening in our text. The problem for the king isn't that you can't continue to worship whatever God you want. For this king, it is this call to worship is a call to unqualified allegiance to him. And so the prominent people are present. And because the prominent people are present, this would mean that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are present. They're called to the plain of Dura. They're called to declare their love, their loyalty, their submission to the sovereign king, Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, most people ask the question, where's Daniel? Where's Daniel in our text? Why isn't Daniel here? And why isn't he participating? And the answer is, we're not told. Some have suggested that he is at the king's palace. Maybe he's at the citadel. Maybe he's doing some sort of foreign relations. Whatever is happening, the Bible doesn't tell us where he is. But some have seen in his absence 
a picture of the absence in the future age where there's a trial by fire for a Jewish remnant who are going to be called by a future king. And if they do not submit to this king, they are going to be placed in a fiery circumstance, but they are going to be preserved for the final moment for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Whether that's true or whether that's false, I see a type in a picture. The king believes with all of his heart that he's the supreme being on, the, on this plane of existence. He believes with all of his heart that the unity and the longevity of his kingdom will come with the compliance of all people and nations and languages. He saw the vision, heard the interpretation of Daniel in chapter 2, but this king builds an image whose head is gold, whose shoulders are gold, whose torso is gold, whose legs are gold, whose feet and toes are of gold. Now, some scholars have suggested that if you are a statue maker or if you are a person who's familiar with the human form and you have a five to one ratio versus a 10 to one ratio and you have that much gold in any given place that the, gold, that the weight of the gold itself, that the, that the statue itself is going to topple under the weight of the gold. Some have suggested that there may have been an internal metal framework that would have made it possible either with wood or some other kind of physical construction and then overlay this magnificent statue with gold. Whether that's true or whether that's false, it made me think about something. That if you take all of the gold reserves in Russia and you take all of the gold reserves at Fort Knox in Kentucky, if you take all the gold reserves of China, if you take all the gold reserves of India, if you take all the gold reserves of Britain, if you take all the gold reserves of France, who could quite possibly lose at the today in the finals. Not that I'm rooting for Croatia. I just always root against France. <laughs> but if you take the sum and the substance of all the gold supplies in all of the 10 largest countries on the planet Earth, you could create a statue that's 60 cubits high and that's six cubits at the base. Isn't that interesting? Human beings in Babylon's kingdom are going to be pressed and persuaded that the way to world peace is to adopt Nebuchadnezzar's vision for all of mankind. So why was it necessary to worship the statue? What exactly did that statue represent? Did it represent the statue's builder? Is it a composition and, and the dimensions? Is it an homage to what it means to be human? I'm going to suggest to you it's Nebuchadnezzar's statue. It's made of gold, which is the royal element. Its dimensions are the dimensions of a man magnified. Ten times. 
And so the Bible always represents true and false worship. That true worship is a right understanding of the God of the Bible. And that false worship is always going to include the elevation and the exaltation of human beings. The search for happiness apart from the God of Daniel is like looking in a haystack for a needle, but there is no needle in the haystack. And so people are looking, they're looking, they're looking to satisfy that need to worship inside of them. Paul reminded the Corinthians of his day, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light and the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And so all of the people that you know, all of the people who fill their lives with anything other than the God of the Bible, other than the Savior in the Bible, They're looking for a way to fill the emptiness. But according to the Bible, God isn't going to permit the wicked forever. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, 7, He rules by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. But this king has exalted himself. He's abandoned the vision and its meaning. He's trying to create a world where he gets to exist forever apart from God, apart from Christ. And so in this sense, the king now becomes the servant of Satan and he becomes the prophetic picture of the future antichrist who wages war against the saints and who will prevail for a season. The Bible commands that we worship God. It forbids the worship of creation or creatures. In Exodus chapter 20, you know, this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In Matthew 4, 10, it says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The divine priority for human beings appears to be worship first and service second. And so I think the reformers got it right when they said, You exist to glorify God. The life of Jesus is the only perfect act of worship that's ever been offered. We pray, we worship, we do the best that we can. But the best that we can do is always incomplete and insufficient. There's only been one, one, count them. There's only been one perfect act of worship, submission, and obedience, it came from the Lord Jesus Christ. It came from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we as Christians say, my incomplete, my insufficient worship, as incomplete as, and as insufficient as it is, 
can only find some connection to the real God of the Bible in the person of Jesus. A.W. Tozer famously said, quote, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men, unquote. And the moment that you decide that you want to be right with God, you are going to invite persecution. What are the consequences of failing to embrace the king's vision? Look at what it says in verses 6 and 7. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. State-sponsored religion. Consequence. Incineration. I want you to look carefully at that word worship. And whoever does not fall down and worship. That's one of those words you should underline. It appears 11 times in the book of Daniel. There should be a little star, and in your mind, you should be thinking, what does worship mean? What is God telling me about worship in this book? Worship is unified and enforced under Nebuchadnezzar. So you have to ask a couple of questions at this point. What music, what, 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 what role will music play in the future of a forced religion, a forced world religion? The burning fiery furnace was an industrial strength oven. I don't know if you've ever seen an industrial strength oven. I don't know if you've ever seen like a, um, what's called a lime kiln. On this plain in Dura, after they had built this statue, they must have had the kiln there. I don't think that they just set it up for show or for laughs. This kiln would have been massive. It would have been used to bake bricks and smelt metal. And it must have had some sort of orifice because as we're going to be looking at our text, the king is going to be able to see into this fiery furnace Our friends unharmed. I know I'm giving it away. (laughs) But what you may not have known is this was one of the favorite means of execution in the Babylonian culture. The Code of Hammurabi, which was written a thousand years earlier, proscribed death by fire if a holy woman opens a tavern door and enters the door and drinks in the tavern, she shall be burned with fire. So a thousand years before Daniel and his friends, if you were a so-called religious woman or a priestess of any cult and you went into the place where people got intoxicated, they threw you in the fiery kiln. If a fire broke out in a home and a person came to rescue the people or to try and help, but all of a sudden they decided that they're going to steal some of the goods in that home for themselves, they were burned with fire. If a person was found guilty of incest with his mother after his father had died, he would be burned, they would both be burned with fire. So this burning with fire was something that was reserved for heinous crimes. In Jeremiah chapter 29, 22, it says, and because of them, a curse shall be taken up in the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. So they were aware that this is what would happen. 
In verse 7 it says, So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, all the nations, all the languages, fell down and worshipped the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In the end, all the people respond to the threat by capitulation. These people had already been pre-programmed to bow. They were already entrenched in a pagan culture and they were already, they understood what would happen if they didn't. People will do almost anything if they're threatened with death. And in order to implement a one world religion, well, it requires compliance. And in order to require compliance, it requires the abandonment of freedom. So the new definition of freedom is we're free to do what the state says we can do. We're free to do what the state says. We're free to believe what the state allows us to believe. We're free to believe and do what the state says we can do. Because you see, people who abandon God and Christ, they don't abandon every God and every Messiah. They will of necessity make the state their God. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever said the Pledge of Allegiance, you place your hand on your heart and you said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. Not one nation as God. A nation under God. You need to ask yourself three important questions. Do you like having rights that the government can't take away? If the answer is yes, then you have to believe that it isn't the government that gives you rights. We're one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Is it liberty and justice provided by the state or is it liberty and justice provided by the God of the Bible? We will be a people under God or we will be a people who invites the state to be our God. If you like having rights that the government can't take away, if you like being equal, if you like a country where there are few laws, then you want to be in a nation under God. We're living in a time when our freedom is threatened because only God deserves to be worshipped. Worship is his exclusive privilege. By the way, the Hebrew word for worship is shaha, which meant to bow down or prostrate yourself. If you go to the New Testament, you'll see that the word is translated 
pro, in the Greek language, it's proskuneo, which came to mean to prostrate yourself, but literally in the origin of the word, it meant to kiss towards. And so in the Greek understanding of worship, it included a component of affection. Worship involves not just thinking things with your mind or even reverencing or praising or adoring or paying homage with words and songs and ritual. Our word worship comes from a word which meant worth-ship. When you value someone or you value something, when you value it and it becomes the object of your preoccupation and affection and attention. These children have already made their decision that they're not going to bow that they're not going to worship this idol. It's interesting to me that paganism and the threat of death has been conditioned into the wider population to bring about immediate submission. So what's going to happen? How can we have an unwavering faith in the true and the living God? I think we have to think of the other future king, Jesus, who's going to rule and reign forever because he promises persecution. But he also promises preservation in the coming persecution and eventual Elevation. Because you're going to see later on in the text, our friends are going to say, King, we're not going to bow. And whether we're delivered by the fire or in the fire, we will be delivered. What does that mean? If they're incinerated in this fiery furnace, they're going to have their reward by the God of the Bible. You see, you will receive the reward that you're committed to. We've got so much to learn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we think about this time and this message and this hope, Lord, we know that there's going to be many temptations to compromise. There's going to be many temptations to faithlessness. Lord, we pray that you would give us a deeper understanding of what it means to know you and to love you, what it means to worship you, and how we can avoid the trap of falling into failed worship that can't satisfy. And so, Lord, again, we understand that this is a type and a picture, a vision of what almost certainly will happen in the book of Revelation in a future where a king elevates himself above everyone and everything and then calls on the world to worship him. Lord, we pray that our hearts would remain pure, steadfast, committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life.
Lord, we, we want to be a nation under God. And Lord, we want to be a people under God. And we want to be a church under God. And so again, Lord, we pray that our loyalty, our affection, and our commitment would be to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.